Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today we are joined by Michael, our resident ephesiologist. I'm Andrew Johnson, pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas, and it is our great honor today to be joined by Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. So we'll we'll go through the the big paragraph describing how awesome Dr. Pryor is. Uh, she has written the book on reading well, finding the good life through great books. She is constantly speaking all over the nation. She is a writer for Christianity Today, The Atlantic, Washington Post, New York Times, Vox. She is a contributing editor for Comment. She is a founding member of the Pelican Project, a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, a senior fellow at the International Alliance for Christian Education. And at one point in her life, she decided to fight a bus. And then it might sound like the bus won, but since she's sitting with us today, I actually say, Dr. Pryor, you were the winner. So, Dr. Pryor, welcome to our podcast. Oh, what a victory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've got to hear this now. You can't just throw out that she fought a bus and then we don't talk about it. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for having me here. And five years ago, I was uh, in Nashville, Tennessee and entered a crosswalk and didn't see the bus until it hit me. Um, And so I spent eight days at Vanderbilt um, University Hospital, um, next several months um, healing before I could walk. And um, here I am. Oh, my. Thanks, thanks be to God. <laughs> yes. No kidding. Well, the funny thing, Dr. Pryor, about all the the reality now that we have about parasocial relationships is that I have long been following you on, on the Twitters and, uh, and, and listening to your wisdom there. And so when people start posting, hey, please be praying for Karen because she decided to get run over by a bus. Um, you know, I was one of <laughs> the people who was, who, <laughs> it was a very quick decision. Uh, I just, I was one of the people who, who was praying for you, who was, who was bringing your needs and this incredibly horrible situation to the Lord. So um, well, thank you. Thank you. Yes. He answered many prayers and he, I'm he grateful. Has. And he, he is very faithful, but that uh, we did not bring you on to, uh, for you to regale us with with <laughs> tales of buses and crosswalks, uh, you have. Oh, recently... that's a title for a book. Well, we can let you write that next one. <laughs> no, not me. I think I think we get Doctor Pryor. Uh, I think right. our book titles are better. Uh, yeah. Okay, so so Doctor Pryor, you have, and I will try to call you Karen. It took me forever to not call Michael by what I used to call him when he was my professor. So I will also try to call you Karen. You're not just a doctor, always to be referred to as that. Uh, You are the recent author of The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Um, I am so thankful that you have written this book. Um, What 
this is a, I think this is a bad question, but I'm going to go with it anyway. What challenged you or what came about around you that said, I think I need to, I think I need to write something about this. I'm seeing something around me and I need to bring it to the table. Well, I uh, wrote my doctoral dissertation many years ago um, on the influence of, of evangelicalism in the rise of the English novel in the 18th and 19th century. So I studied evangelical history um, through my study of literature. So I knew this history um, is a big part of, of how I understand myself and how I came to understand myself in doing that research. But when I eventually came to teach um, in uh, evangelical institutions of higher education and was teaching uh, you know, younger generations of Christians who grew up in evangelical subculture, which I did not. I grew up in a Christian home, but, you know, really before um, a lot of this uh, subculture rose to such prominence, um, I would teach literature, in particular Victorian literature, and many of my students would, in studying this literature, would comment on how so much of uh, what the Victorians did and said and idealized was what they had been taught was Christian or biblical. Mm -hmm. And so we just began to ask this question, well, is this idea or this value or this, you know, this um, thinking, is it really Christian or is it just Victorian? And so just asking that question uh, over a number of years, and sometimes posting things like that out on Twitter and I would get a great response. I thought, you know, I need to write a book about this because evangelical 21st century American evangelicalism really has a, a lot of Victorian influence, um, you know, good and bad, but also we need to understand what is cultural versus what is biblical. So wow. that was the beginning of the book. Hmm. And how how is that exhibited? Give us some examples of where you saw Victorian ideas in American evangelicalism. Yeah, well, well, the, the main um, ideas that sort of started this were ones around purity culture and sexuality. Hmm. So if we know anything about Victorians, um, right or wrong, we might associate sort of prudishness towards sexuality <laughs> with them and un unhealthy prudishness. Um, I don't know if you know this, but evangelicals can be that way too. <laughs> but, yes. <laughs> uh, but even more um, devastating, um, a lot of the Victorian literature deals with the sexual double standard, one that um, says, hey, boys will be boys, but if a, a, a woman um, loses her virginity, whether through, you know, a bad decision or even more often through force or just mm. simply, you know, not having any agency, then she is ruined, ruined for life. This is, you know, a, a prevailing theme throughout Victorian literature. And I would have evangelical students come to me after class and tell me that they were ruined um, and they were dealing with it in, in the same sort of devastating ways that, you know, their Victorian counterparts from two centuries before were dealing with it. And that's when I began to see a real problem um, in the, you know, in the nuanced work of teaching biblical sexual morality, um, but alongside biblical notions of grace and forgiveness and mercy as well, which the Victorians didn't do very well. Um, but Lo and behold, neither are we um, I would say, in evangelicalism. <laughs> this sounds like uh, 
you know, you, you see the big apparent thing and it's the elephant in the room. Oh, we are doing a really bad job uh, in, in this area of uh, sexuality. And then we see that in the Victorian era. But my guess is uh, you started peeling that onion and you started finding that the the one big obvious thing became unfortunately one of many things right. that you were seeing in great commonality with that Victoria era, Victorian era. What were some of those as you began again, this was, this was a, it was a research thing that you had already done. So it was, mm-hmm. it was very familiar to you. Um, I have not done great, vast amounts of reading in the Victorian era. And so there are things that, that you are covering in this book that were revelatory for me. What were some of the greater revelations for you as you started peeling back that onion, looking back? Yeah, that's a great question because my area of expertise is 18th and 19th century British literature and and along with that history. I, don't, I know less about American history in that era uh, and far less about you know, 20th and 21st century American history and politics. And of course, all of these things um, go together when we're talking about evangelicalism, because, well, I am an American and we're talking primarily about American evangelicalism in the context of this book. Um, and uh, and so I had to do a lot of digging in the 20th century American evangelical history. And there were things that, you know, every everyone who studies this knows, um, but people like me, and I assume people who've studied less than me, uh, know things that we don't know. So just something like discovery, you know, I say discover because obviously it's all documented, but realizing that um, Ronald Reagan's famous evil empire speech was given before the National Association of Evangelicals. Like who knew, who knew? Well, everyone knew, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> you know, these are parts of our history that, that, you know, so obviously that played a, a, pro, a prominent role in the rise of the religious right and our understanding of, you know, the cold war and eschatology and, you know, a lot of, a lot of biblical things connected to, uh, how we view America and how we view other nations around the world. Like this was, this took place within um, evangelicalism. And so just things like that to understand how the the history of politics right now in this moment uh, began decades ago. It didn't just happen in 2016. (laughs) Um, It's been happening for a long time. So there are more recent things that I feel like I didn't know because I hadn't studied them. And, you know, our cultural memory is short. Uh, There are so many things that we don't know about our own history that it wasn't Mm -hmm. that long ago. So um, I just sort of uncovered the things that were some of the things that were new to me. Well, tell us about that. What were some of the things, what, what surprised you the most as you were doing this research? Hmm. Um, I think what, I mean, there were things that I had, or, you know, that are part of history that I didn't know, like I just mentioned, the ties between Republican, you know, I, I've been a lifelong Republican voter, just full disclosure, until recently. Um, so this is, you know, so this is me learning more, more about my own mm-hmm. self and my own history, uh, but learning some of the, you know, the ways in which um, candidates that I consider to be just sort of conservative um, really were tied to other, um, not just religious and evangelical, but even um, racial histories um, that 
kind of all go together. Um, you know, uh, so there's the, I know I touch on those and give ample um, citations for anyone who wants to do more research on um, those topics. But one of the things that I just uh, sort of discovered for myself in the process that I feel like I contributed perhaps to this understanding of our history um, is in my chapter on empire, um, which begins where I already said I began in, you know, 19th century Victorian literature. Um, that's the age of the of the British Empire. And it was said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. And so in thinking through the ways in which colonialism and imperialism are directly tied to our evangelical history, um, I saw some connection there uh, between that history and our present in which we as evangelicals love to build empires, mm -hmm. right? You know, publishing empires, conference empires, um, online course empires, empires of many kinds, which are not the same thing um, as, you know, physical, geographical, political empires, but there's a mentality that comes along, I think, um, that is very similar. And so that was a that was an interesting insight for me that helped me to understand, you know, some of my own history and my own um my own history within evangelicalism. Did you feel well, let me rephrase that. While I was reading, it hit me. I told Michael before we started recording, I said, Dr. Dr. Pryor writes in such a way that I am I am excited to lean in and I am nodding my head. And then I am nodding my head to my own detriment because I realize that she is slowly calling out things that I call dear and making them cultural. And now I have this moment, not a moment, but many moments of self-reflection going, oh my gosh, all these things that I thought were Christian, all these things that I thought were so dear now I'm wondering how much of my faith have I thought was Christian as a pastor? How much have I taught from the pulpit? How much have I encouraged people to interpret scripture in such a way that in fact might have been cultural in, in that when there was, you know, the, the literary bomb, I don't know if you can actually throw literary bombs, mm -hmm. but I would say Jesus and John Wayne kind of became that literary bomb for a lot of people reading it, having similar reflections to you of saying so much that I thought I hold, held dear, politically speaking, I am now seeing is not as clean as I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And following that historical chain is very eye-opening. How have you heard from others who have also read your book, just kind of this eye-opening, oh my gosh, what is my faith now sort of reaction? You know, it, I mean, the the response to the book has been along those lines. It's it's been very positive, and I think the I think the um, comparison to Jesus and John Wayne is apt. Um, um, Kristen Jume is a historian. I'm an English professor, so we're we're you know coming from different. Um, academic disciplines and and our focus is a little bit different, but we're both talking about the way in which culture has such a heavy influence on our thinking and our believing and our living that we often, well, I use the metaphor in the book. I, I give that quote from David Foster Wallace, that famous one where, you know, the fish are swimming in the in the fishbowl and, and one swims by and says, how's the water? And the other says, what water? You know, I mean, that is what culture is like for us. It's very hard to distinguish between um, our 
unexamined underlying assumptions and what is transcendent and universal and eternally true um, because because they're just they're you know they're so enmeshed in one another so that yes lots of people who've been reading the book have had that kind of response and what I cover in the book is by no means exhaustive what right. I'm really trying to do is to kind of make the point and show how this is the kind of discernment um, and dis dis distinctions the, the kind of distinctions we need to continue to make as we as as we live um as we grow as we uh as we learn as especially as christians hmm. it seems that in a way you you say you know you it wasn't exhaustive and certainly there's no book that's exhaustive every book mm -hmm. is a different layer of scratching surfaces um in a way though it kind of it's it's funny. It's like, it's not so much like scratching the surface. It's like, I'm going to open this wound. All right. It's open. I haven't actually covered it yet. So I'm going to go over here and open this wound. And, and there's a lot of things that are open and need to be, I want to say dealt with. Um, I, you are not a prognosticator, but based on your study and, and trajectory that you have seen through literature and art, 18th century and moving forward, where do you think the future of evangelicalism is, and again, I'm not to, not to spoil the book, but um, where do you think it could go? What are some things that could alter that trajectory? Well, this movement that we call evangelicalism um, is, you know, again, according to historians and, and so forth is 300 years old. The word of course is older and some people get, um, uh, stumble on that issue, but there is a, a literal movement that started in England and in America that's 300 years old and came to be called evangelicalism. And, you know, so it hasn't always existed in this, you know, it's within Christianity. So, and, and it hasn't always existed and it may not always exist. Um, I give the definitions and that history briefly in, in my book for anyone who wants to know, I'm not just making them up. And that really is the question. Is this thing that that I think as an evangelical is powerful and positive and because of its emphasis on individual conversion and activism and the Bible and Christ's crucifixion, is it is it going to last longer than this or will historians write later? Because I, I, I think it's too early to tell that this movement fractured and polarized beyond repair mm -hmm. and and something else came out of it. Um, if I had to bet, I would bet that's what will happen. Um, I don't know what the term might be for the things that come out of it. Um, but on, on the, yeah, on the other hand, it is a global movement. It is not just yeah, right. American. And I'm seeing yes. with Ameri you know, 21st century American eyes. So um so the yeah, short answer is I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm glad that you point that out in the book because that that has been a point of frustration on my part is who has given the right to Americans to define <laughs> evangelicalism when the majority of evangelicals live outside of the Western right. world, right. and so I, I was grateful that you point that out in the book. Yeah, no, that's a, that is a very important point. And, you know, I'm writing this book for this moment in American evangelicalism and emphasizing that. But it's very important to know that this movement is is, is growing around the world um, and with or without Americans. So we need to humbly acknowledge that. And again, let the let the let history show us 
um, what we learn and don't learn. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, I know this wasn't a part of the book, but I think it it uh, needs to be mentioned that, you know, in spite of the fact that the majority of evangelicals are outside of the Western world, there's still quite an influence. And I see it as I travel around the world that uh, American evangelicalism has had an influence on other ideas of evangelicalism, but hopefully um, we'll be able to sort those sort of things out. Um, yeah, I hope at least. <laughs> well, that's this book is my small effort to at least show us one way to begin doing that. I hope. <laughs> when you when you went in and you know you were hitting Bevington's is it quadrilateral is that was that how it's referred to? Uh, Michael, you are uh, the resident evangelical here. Would you please define for our listeners? <laughs> I bet you could do it real quickly. What what well, is Bevington's? Well, Karen did she. She she defined it a moment ago. The activism, the cruciform nature. The uh, there are two others, and you've you've biblicism uh, and conversionism. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, and there, I mean there are so many definitions of evangelicalism, and I think Bebbington's uh, is a good, uh, easily rememberable for <laughs> most of us. Uh, <laughs> but Alistair McGrath has six points and, you know, we can go down a line of theologians who are defining what evangelicalism is. But I think what you point out, and this is important, that in the American context, the, the, well, in the Western context, the average person doesn't know these things and they are taking the cues of culture to define what evangelicalism is. And I'd love for you to speak about that for a moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that's in a way that's a big part of um, what I'm getting at in the subtitle when I use the word crisis, because, and I and I mentioned this in the book, the word, or maybe it's just in the, in the PR materials for the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, but this word evangelical kind of shot into the vernacular through headlines and recent elections because it was being used as a category for polling and surveying and self-identification, um, really apart from these historical definitions. Um, and so I do explain a little bit of that um, in the book, but as you said, that that means if you know if a pollster comes up to you and says, you know, asks you the question, are you evangelical or born again? Uh, which is the usual question that's asked. Um, people can check yes based on whatever their understanding is, and they can also check yes um, because they understand themselves to be born again without necessarily being evangelical. But it, they often ask one or one or the other, and so we get a whole yeah. You know, so we get a whole category of people who are who are labeled this way, um, who may or may not match up with you know the the actual, any of the actual definitions that we accept. Mm. And that's problematic, problematic, isn't it? it? It is. We see many people who are by any of these right. main definitions, evangelical, but rejecting the term because it, because the people who are, you know, who are labeled that don't uh, represent their views. So, uh, so that's why I've actually you know, this is part of what I'm trying to do is maybe it's a, you know, a, 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 a quixotic effort to to salvage a word or a term that I think has a good, long, rich, if 
very imperfect history um, against, you know, from those who don't understand it and misuse it and to say no. And that's why I still call myself evangelical because it rose by any other name, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I fit Bevington's quadrilateral and, and the other major definitions out there. So to help to bring some clarification, what what other moniker or adjective to describe evangelical might we use to to differentiate the definition of Bebbington and others from what we're seeing in the culture? Hmm. I mean, one of the terms that that I um, use and a lot of people I know use, it's, it's not quite the same thing, but like small O orthodox, um, which I suppose some of those who um, who aren't evangelical and really consider themselves that might not, not agree with the use of that term. Um, just Christian is fine. Again, I think we're in this moment. I don't know what it will be called. Um, and, and, and many people who, who are Christian actually tend to identify as simply Christian. And then their next label would be related to their church denomination. So evangelical really has become, um, in recent years, a term that's used mainly by those outside of evangelicalism to mm -hmm. categorize people who are, you know, come from very different denominations and very different traditions and yet share these these qualities in common. Mm -hmm. and, the, and probably I would imagine, well, and I've seen this in other parts of the world, even the term Christian is not as preferred in some places just because of the connection of Christianity to the West. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, one thing I do point out in, in the book is that the first um, followers of Christ called themselves followers of the way. They didn't even yeah. call themselves Christians. And that's, that's, that, that's a, an interesting, I, I think I knew that before writing the book, but it wasn't something I'd spent a lot of time thinking about. And that is very, um, I think it's very fruitful to think about because there's so much history there, um, so much meaning in that word versus the one that we use and uh, sometimes we sometimes we get so attached to again to our our man-made traditions and cultures that we think that is you know the biblical truth um and when we look at the bible a little more closely we find out it's not it's almost like it feels to me that looking back you know okay followers of the way and they were they were called derogatorily little Christs, you, you right, right. little Christians. And, uh, and then that stuck. Um, we as Christians over the years, decades and centuries have been called or called ourselves different things. And it seems right now, this idea of um, latching on to that idea of evangelicalism or calling ourselves evangelical, it feels like a sinking ship. A little bit and right that we're we're trying to hold on to it and the ship is going down and we're saying, no, 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 this is a good term, I promise. And other people are saying this is a bad term because it is associated with this other thing that is completely not what you are, even to the, you're talking about, Michael, like uh, or that people might not want to associate themselves <laughs> with the term Christian. Right, something that we are all trying to say, like, OK, this is the most base level. Just call yourself a Christian. And then that gets you lumped in with the West. And and so I feel sometimes that we're trying to gravitate toward terms that are all different levels of sinking ships um, that we're trying to run to the thing that we feel is the most accurate or the least offensive or isn't going to get us lumped in with something that we are not. 
So um, what is, what's, what's your timeline? Do you, do you think evangelicalism <laughs> as, as the, as the American church is concerned, are we about to jettison that into the ether uh, shortly or how are we standing? Yeah, well, I, I, there's a thought that you, you just gave me and what you said, uh, which is, it's not an original, but just you, we know this, but in what you just said in, about, we insist on using these terms and labels. Um, and what does the Bible say about how people know, will know? It is not by what we call ourselves. They will know we are Christians by our love one for another and by um, our um, showing the fruit of the spirit. So anyway, I just some light bulbs were going off for me that that I, I'm feeling um, challenged and almost indicted by your words. Um, you know, I'm a word person, so I do try, and I also do tend to want to cling to the old <laughs> words and definitions, but you're absolutely right. Um, there comes a point where that becomes um, not only futile, but maybe even harmful um, to our faith and our witness and the church. Um, timeline, you know, in the book, I suggest that um, when I talk about the first Reformation, the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, and I suggest that it's time for another reformation. I think the moment is that big. It's at least like mm -hmm. a 500 year moment. Mm -hmm. um, it may be a 1000 year moment. I have some friends who um, talk in different terms and, and talk about uh, something that broad and sweeping. And so uh, I do think we're in a moment. Um, how long it will take, I don't know. Things move much more rapidly in modernity than they did mm -hmm. before. Um, so I guess in my mind, I think to myself that I might not live to see the, you know, the, the, the turn, uh, mm -hmm. and the new moment, but I think, you know, people younger than me will. And so I'm motivated a great deal by, um, you know, being faithful and strong for them. So if we do our work, Mark Knoll will add another turning point in his book, Turning Points, Marking the Change in Christianity. Um, would you say, I mean, if I'm, if I'm reading between the lines, I don't, I don't think you're calling for another schism, but it, is, is that the level of change you're talking about? I'm, I'm uh, not calling for it. It's happening. <laughs> well, and, and, it's, and it's going to be multi-faced, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, I don't, I think the day of one monolithic reformation, I don't think we'll ever see that. Right, We're so right, right. polarized mm -hmm. in American evangelicalism that whatever reformation occurs, it's going to be, it, it'll have multiple faces. Right. Right. Um, so. right. I, I agree. That, I mean, that's sort of the nature of living in late modernity versus, you know, mm -hmm. pre-modernity. Um, but I do think it will be, um, something that is, uh, I, I think, post-institutional mm -hmm. in some respects. And I say that as someone who my whole life has devoted my entire life <laughs> to institutions and believes, has always believed in institutions. Um, and that doesn't mean new institutions won't be created and built, but I think um, the kinds of, uh, you know, empires that we mm -hmm. have, that we have built now, mm -hmm that are built on anything but um, the pure, unadulterated gospel um, 
those those will end and something new will form in some new ways with you know the cat this i mean the categories that we have now won't won't hold they aren't holding so mm. as somebody like yourself who <laughs> i feel myself in a similar boat that there's so much of my work and so much of my effort and time have unintentionally been to keep the institution hooray for institution and let's build this thing um and you know looking back have those all have those all treated us very well um has it have we benefited from the institution as much as we thought we would in keeping them about or or seeking to establish them for a longer time um if there is a and again i i think i really appreciate how you say um we can call for whatever schism or lack of schism we want it's happening um how, where do we go when we start talking about moving away from the institutions? How do we actually move that idea of, uh, uh, I don't want to use, because I uh, gospel-centered, that is such a washed-out term now uh, because it has been adapted by, or adopted by so many, co-opted probably more accurately. Um, how does the, how does the, the church move forward? away from institutions from your vantage point Karen yeah you know what I'm going to tee you up here Karen because I think I think I might know a part of the answer because that's what your book is about in some way is that we need new imagination I mean, the, the the socially constructed imagination that we have, the metaphors that we've been using that you so brilliantly lay out in the book, in some way, those have to change and evolve. I don't know if that's the right word, progress, um, uh, become, well, I mean, we need to discover new metaphors, right. It, right. it seems, don't we? Oh, absolutely. That I mean, that, that's, yeah, that that's what I'm trying to show in the book. Um, and just to go back to something Andrew said about the institutions, uh, you know, and, you know, the question, have we benefited from them? I want to say I have benefited greatly. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Um, I benefited so much that it was easy to be blind to the ways in which institutions were harming others and harming the church. Um, and so that's, you know, that, that's part of the renewal of my own imagination um, and my own um, decisions to, uh, to give up those benefits without knowing what's next and knowing only that I have Jesus and that, that I see others doing the same um, who are turning to Jesus. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know how that part ends up because we're just in this moment where I just see so many, um, you know, I, I talk about briefly about the word deconstruction in the book. It's a metaphor that get, makes people nervous because, you know, many of the people who first used that term were leaving the faith, uh, deconverting. Um, but there are many, many more who are doing exactly what I'm describing in this book, which is to examine, you know, these, the undergirding joists and floorboards and structures of the house to see which ones are rotten and get rid of those so that we can, you know, rebuild the house. Um, and I'm seeing people who are doing that work of disentangling the cultural from the biblical and finding Jesus and finding the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so, 
that's what I think is happening now and what will emerge out of out of that, I don't know, but this is a very necessary step, um, I think, to just sort of shed the extraneous, get back to the basics, um, and um, then I don't, yeah, then I don't know what happens, and I lost track of your question, but it does, it does involve, it does involve using our imaginations, um, because we can debate doctrine all day, that's, if you go on Twitter, that's what happens, and I, I find, you know, I, I agree with the doctrine of so many people that I, um, how do I want to put this, that that I see nothing of Jesus in, um, that I'm forced to think about these matters in ways um, that aren't just about doctrine. But are about imagination and about how about being, um, not just believing, but being in our posture and loving others, um, even as we hold to the truths that we believe. Hmm. Dang. Well, Karen, I appreciate so much of what you have said in this book. And I think the longer Michael and I keep interrogating you with questions that are popping into (laughs) our minds, what's going to happen is we're going to unintentionally spoil or give people a reason (laughs) not to read the book. And we don't want that. No, Uh, you don't. No, we don't. (laughs) Yeah. But people need to go out and buy this book. This is, this is fantastic. I'd love what you've done. I love the fact that you have so many uh, resources that we can follow up on. In fact, they distract me, but in a good way. Uh, Yeah. And I also want to say thank you for how you wrote it. And I want to, I can't blame you for the timing that I read it because we were in London and we did not have enough time to see all the things that we wanted to see. We literally went into the Tate. We went into this museum we essentially went in there to use the restroom and then leave because that is the blessing of free museums. Um, (laughs) And we saw a few pieces. Um, My wife got some photos next to like some of her favorite pieces that were there and we were gone. We were out in five minutes. And then like literally a day later, I'm reading in your book and it's like, this piece is in the Tate and this piece is in the Tate and this piece is in the Tate. And so now thank you for writing this book because now it forces me to go back to London and see some of these wonderful um, illustrations you have for some of your pieces. Uh, but it is an it was an honor to have you on the podcast today. Uh, if somebody besides buying the book, this book and on reading well, um, how can they follow up with you or keep track of what you are doing out in the world? Yeah, well, my um, my most um, invigorating project right now is my Substack newsletter, where I am writing about um, British literature. We're on the Canterbury Tales now, and a lot of people are enjoying reading or rereading the Canterbury Tales with me. But I also make a lot of you know current day applications. So um, if you want to see you know just how literature does reflect life and evangelical life in particular. You can find me on Substack at The Priory. Um, that's probably the, the project I'd love love to people to join in along with reading the book. And you can just catch up with me um, briefly, all the things I do at my uh, website, karenswallowprior.com. Has anybody given you an award for uh, calling it The Priory? Because I think they should have. I mean, that was a that was a brilliant work of linguistics wordsmithing. So well done. I'll take the award. Thank you. There we go. Well, 
Uh, Dr. Pryor, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for those of you who have tuned into this podcast because of our wonderful guests, we would love for you to delve deeper into the, the resources that we have at the Ephesiology Podcast, or you can join us on Facebook where we end up continuing these conversations. Um, and as referenced earlier, uh, the increasing online courses, uh, Ephesiology is a part of that. We have masterclasses.ephesiology.com, and we want to invite you into your own growth as well as what God might be doing in and through you in this church and um, the world at large. So on behalf of Karen, Michael, and myself, thank you for joining us on the Ephesiology Podcast. <laughs>